This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel, and we will begin with a look ahead to Thursday's budget. The central theme is supposed to be dealing with the runaway cost of living and inflation, but how will all the spending we expect affect that? The latest fiscal update projected a deficit of $58.4 billion, but that was before the war on Ukraine and before the liberal NDP pact, which is predicated on social spending. Not to mention all the election promises from September, $78 billion worth. So we'll see how many will actually be costed out and fulfilled. And speaking of elections, the campaign here in Ontario seems totally underway with spending announcements coming at breakneck speed. So people out there, what are you watching for? What are you hoping for that may give you some kind of a break on the cost of living? The numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Uh, let us begin with the former Finance Minister. So as we head towards this budget, uh, it seems like there are these two things that may not be compatible. Well, it's going to be an important moment, certainly for the NDP and the Liberal Pact, to determine how they're able to sustain and afford some of the uh, some of the spending that's coming forward. And by you know, if I do a back of the envelope calculation, this year's budget will include at least an additional thirty billion dollars more in spending, and that's on top of their existing deficit of sixty billion. However, I mean, there is an improvement. In the economy too, the economy is stronger to sustain some of this, um, some of these issues. Right, but again, I mean, you had these election promises. You have the NDP pact, and uh, the government has signaled that it's going to increase military spending. And and I think everybody, uh, or this is a moment where there is widespread agreement that we really need to do that. And that's almost an additional seventeen billion dollars right there from their existing $23 billion in, in defense spending over time. So that's a huge jump. And, of course, then there's also the other issues of importance and priorities for the government around the housing, around the green energy initiatives, um, how are they going to uh, support uh, the ongoing issues with the pandemic, and that's still an issue. Um, so the health matters are, are still there. And, then of course, with the NDP's pact with dental and pharma, care, there is a substantive amount of spending that's going to be required. But again, they are all offsetting with increased taxes, right? They're going after the banks and insurance companies by an additional billion dollars. There's increase in the overall revenues of 
of the government because of the improved economy. And, and the other aspect here is the inflation issue. Inflation is actually helping the government in some of its spending because the cost of those funds and the actual numbers are inflated as well. So they take benefit to some extent as a result of, of higher inflation. Hmm. Uh, John, uh, what do conservatives think of all this? Well, I think this is going to be a budget that would even make, you know, former finance minister Charles Souza shake in his boots <laughs> from the perspective of uh, of the spending that's going to happen. And I think there's a number of of, of things that that the you know the finance minister, deputy prime minister, is going to have to look at. Maybe not least of which, of course, is as you mentioned, the Liberal NDP alliance. You know, this is the first budget since that deal or the agreement has has taken place. So there's going to have to be some some spending that shows goodwill. Uh, from the Liberals towards the NDP. They can't, you know, in good faith say, yes, we agree with this agreement and we're part of this alliance, but yet not have any sort of bones to throw the, the NDP. So there's going to be some some spending on health care with respect to not only pharmacare, but also Dedicare, uh, and some of those other issues that the Liberals have, have really not talked about in the last number of budgets or even throne speeches. So the NDP have elevated that to, to high, high priority. So that's going to have to be in the budget. And then as, as Charles has mentioned as well, the whole defense spending and the fact that the Ukraine war is going on and, and what's happening and, and all the NATO discussions and, and even the, the prime minister and some senior ministers, including Christia Freeland, have said that there's going to have to be some increased spending in defense. So there's going to be this balance between social issues healthcare and, and others, also defense spending. And how do, you, how do you sort of balance those two? Because that's going to cause a lot of liberals to be a little uneasy with respect to that kind of spending. And then lastly, you know, as we've seen from polls, Ipsos had another, another poll recently that showed that Canadians are increasingly aware and concerned about cost of living and, and sort of what we call pocketbook issues. And how is this government going to deal with that vis-a-vis economic recovery post-pandemic? That's all of the the stuff that this, this 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 budget is going to have to look at, and a lot of people will be looking to see if those are addressed. Karen, uh, I mean, uh, you're in the nonprofit sector. We just saw a report today from Canada Help saying that one in four Canadians might have to access services provided by a charitable group. Um, does all of this kind of high level spending does it come down to the community in a meaningful way? You know, it's one of those things, I mean, it could, um, but there's risks. There's no question that there's risks. And I, and I think that what is increasingly becoming evident is that there is a divide between uh, the direction the government is going and perhaps the direction the business community and the central bank would like to go. And um, it, then when that divide occur- is happening, then it becomes less clear how these incentives and extra spending is actually going to get to where it's needed most. And um, particularly when you don't have targeted programs. And so, you know, I think the conservatives would favor, of course, making sure that no one's left behind, but they would prefer more targeted investments in pharmacare and um, dental care as opposed to a blanket national policy. Because there's the risks are uh, not just that the spending is unaffordable and that it becomes, you know, borrowing against future tax revenue is risky because if there is a recession, that future tax revenue may or may not be there. Uh, it becomes more expensive because the Bank of Canada is already signaling that it's going to increase its interest, you know, its, its, um, uh, you know, its, its bank rate, so the interest payments are going to go up. Um, and what's even more concerning is that these programs that the NDP is, is touting and embracing are actually fully encroaching on provincial jurisdiction. Hmm. 
And huh. so then there's another tension that is emerging. So there's, it's, it's not a good news budget. It, it has the potential to help uh, perhaps make people feel better in the short term, but the long-term implications could become quite complicated for the government. And, um, and it's a lot of money. And we've, the government has just spent a lot of money keeping Canada going and it, it you know, arguably needed to in order to make sure that, um, it, you know, there wasn't a full economic collapse. But it's still not really clear what the drivers of inflation are. And if we add more fuel to this fire, is that actually helping? Um, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, in terms of the dental care, uh, it's pretty clearly laid out that the first tranche has to be kids 12 and under being covered. Uh, and seniors, our older people, will be covered uh, in 2023. So but, I have a lot of kids have coverage. Through a lot care. of kids have coverage. And it's 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 not uh, clear to me. Uh, does Is it like, you know, on the insurance uh, forms that you have from work where it says, are, are you covered under any other plan? Is that how it's going to work? We have no idea. Right. It's what, it's what the province so I, ultimately I just think did. Canadians worry. And, you know, that's a very interesting point about it encroaching on provincial jurisdiction. And, of course, we just had the child care rolling out. That's huge. So, again, I mean, it, it just, you know, it's hard to see how the increase that we have because the economy is doing okay is going to cover all this, Charles. Yeah, um, Karen brings up a good point. The, 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 whole motion, the whole issue around fiscal stimulus happens in a, a countercyclical way. So when times are tough, you stimulate the economy, you stimulate injections to try to facilitate recovery. When times are improving, which is the case right now, you slow it down a bit, and you try to sock back a bit more, as John was saying, for future issues. I mean, the idea is how do you be responsible? How do you think long-term? How do you enable uh, Canada to be resilient and provide the buffer necessary to get through this and then prepare ourselves for the next one? And this is the choices that they have to make. And right now they have the benefit uh, of an improved economic blip. The guardrail basically has been our overall debt to GDP, GDP being the strength of the economy, and it's improving. It's improving even with the increased deficit um, because the economy is improving. So, but that's that's an, a one measure. But the other one is: Are we prepared? Are we going to be resilient? Are we going to be uh, sustainable in our spending? Because right now, it's a structural deficit. And to Karen's point, the provinces are in the same predicament. They're all in this predicament, and they're all having to deal with high spending, high deficits um, when the economy is improving. And that's, uh, that's dangerous. We have to find a way to protect uh, the overall balance, if there is such a thing anymore. It seems that the public doesn't care about that anymore, but it's mm-hmm. important, I think, long term. I think you hit on something there. I'm not sure that the public cares. And the other thing, you're talking about all levels of government, and at the end of the day, they all just look to the federal government saying, hey, you've got to come in and bail us out. Well, I mean, and the transfer payments have always been an issue. And you have Alberta and even Ontario, a, a supposedly have-not province. During the time I was there, we were still the largest contributor to the Federation by far. And we always fought with the Fed saying, hey, we need a bit more, as we did for the other provinces. And that's, they're going to have to, and of course, Jason Kenney wants to blow it up. Well, while Jason Kenney was, when he was the federal minister, he didn't like that idea. But now that he's a provincial premier, he obviously sees a dilemma. And that's always a tension between the provinces and federal government. You know, uh, one uh, political commentator, and I forget where where I read this, the spin they put is that the actual 
governing coalition in Canada or here in Ontario are the Trudeau Liberals and and the PCs. Uh, John Capobianco, what do you think of that interpretation? Well, you would certainly get that impression given some of the recent announcements and the partnerships between the feds and uh, uh, and the province. But, you know, and I think a lot of them were needed. Obviously, there's a lot of the infrastructure. There's a lot of spending areas, uh, Libby, where there's where there's dual jurisdictions, right, where the feds and, and the province have, have equal jurisdiction, not least of which, of course, when it comes to infrastructure, the, the, the recent GM announcement and the money that, that the province and, and, the, and, the, and the feds have, have given to uh, to ensure uh, electric vehicles, that's part of the, the, the environment economy, and that's dual jurisdiction. So there's a lot of that opportunity. And I think that we've talked about this on the show before, where the Liberal the liberal NDP alliance federally uh, is going to help, I think, the province in, in Ontario, because there's going to have to be that counterbalance. And, and Karen is right when, when, when she talks about sort of the provincial jurisdictional encroachment from the feds and how you have to be careful. There's certain times when the provinces welcome it and, in fact, demand some level of encroachment and some, some level of assistance. But there's other times when it's not the case. And you've got two major provinces in Canada, both Ontario and Quebec, having elections this year. And then not least of which throw in the leadership battle that the, the Jason Kenney is having in Alberta. Uh, and he's got a jostle for positions uh, for himself to save that job. You've got three major provinces that are all going to be looking for and, and you know, looking for the federal government to help them in some ways or if it helps them, to stay away from them in, in some cases. But it's certainly been helping Ontario over the course of the last little while, especially some of the spending announcements that have been happening uh, with the combined feds and the province, uh, both uh, initiating it. And of course, as you mentioned, the daycare uh, uh, arrangement being settled was a big one, and that needed to be done you know, as soon as possible, and, and glad that it was done. Um, Karen, there are some people who see uh, a demographic aspect to the way the money is being spent. Yesterday, uh, on Mondays, I talked to our Zoomer squad, and they were all throwing their hands up thinking, you know, older Canadians have been forgotten, that obviously this runaway infl- inflation really affects people who are on fixed incomes, and they don't expect any help with that. Meanwhile, we have things like the child care, we have housing initiatives because real estate's gotten expensive. Do you see things that way at all? Well, I, I think, you know, every, um, you know, every generation, as it were, is experiencing a different impact. And, um, you know, certainly the seniors on fixed income experience inflation. Um, people trying to buy their first house are experiencing the astronomical cost of trying to buy a home. Um, you know, kids going into university are experiencing the cost of, of, of what education is. And so they're all legitimate. And, and, I, and, I, and I think that that's just the balancing act for the government is to try to figure out what is the right balance. You know, I, I think that um, perhaps the balance is, is a little bit skewed more towards younger voters uh, with the idea of pharmacare and dental care, uh, particularly for those that have, you know, that are in the gig economy that may not have an employer covering their benefits. There's no question the daycare is aimed at a younger voter, a younger demographic, no question. Um, and so, you know, you can certainly see how a senior may feel as if they've been, you know, they're being taken for granted in this budget. But, um, you know, I, I do think that, in, you know, in some ways there are some legitimate issues around, you know, this generation and helping them be able to afford to have a family if they want one. Charles, do you see a generational aspect to all this? It came up every time. I mean, I did six budgets, so it was always an issue. Um, 
to provide, at the time, free tuition. And we also brought in PharmaCare and, and all-day kindergarten. And the seniors were saying, hey, I don't have to deal with that. What about me? You know, I'm on a fixed income. I can't afford to live. Everything's costing more. And it's even more pronounced today. Of course, all these young people that we're trying to support are the very same people that are going to provide for the pensions that they're living on, right? We need to continue to feed the system in order to maintain that circle. Uh, and we're all in it together. It's a very tough issue. Uh, but there is a lot of investment into health care, which also helps the seniors. Uh, but does it help them afford their home? Well, they have to pay more taxes, and they get beefed up about that. But they own a home, so they have equity in their home. So oftentimes they're, they may be asset rich and cash poor, but what's worse are those that are most vulnerable that don't even have a home. And I really feel for them, and that's the real challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, so where we add all this is, uh, do you think that, that this budget will begin to address the problem of cost of living? Because everything, I mean, um, everything is just so expensive, starting with going to the grocery store, Karen. Yeah, and so so the short answer is no, because again, you know, the, the, the reason that we're having inflation is, you know, is being drilled down to supply chain problems, the war in the Ukraine. Um, you know, there's a whole host of things that are contributing to why um, goods are becoming scarcer. And as they become scarcer, they become more expensive. And injecting a lot of money uh, into the economy right now isn't going to isn't going to help, to be honest, because the goods are scarce, and so it just continues to drive them up for people who can afford to pay for them. And so it it really, um, from from a systems perspective, it, it doesn't really make sense to pour a lot of money in uh, to this economy right now until it can allow itself to stabilize. And I think that's what the central bank is doing by raising interest rates to say let let let's just give this. Um, the, the economy is going full steam. Let's let's let it land, um, and then find out what fiscal stimulus we need, if any. Um, but that being said, you know, again, there's general agreement we need to invest in the military, and that's going to create jobs and spin off industries. So that's an investment. And you know, I think that the right investments are really the ones that are creating sustainable um, growth in the economy, and that nece- that isn't necessarily uh, dental care, um, covering dental care. And so it it really, I think that there. Are, you know, the government has to ask itself the question, um, you know, how are we contributing or not to the rising cost of living? How are we contributing or not to the increased productivity of the country as as a whole? And how are we or not um, just making sure that we're not also putting an unsustainable tax burden on the next generation to pay for what we're doing now? Charles, uh, turning to the province, and we're waiting for this uh, official announcement of the break uh, in gas tax and fuel tax. And then, you know, I look at it and, well, you have to reelect this government to get it. And it's only lasting for six months. And yesterday the premier was asked about it and his response was, well, it's, it's complicated to put it into effect. <laughs> what do you think of that? It's not complicated. All of this stuff for me, and, and I'm not trying to be flippant here, but it, they are doing, listen, they're buying votes. In, in a, in a, and I, I was accused of doing it so in, in, my, in our last budget. Um, but this is flagrant. I mean, vote for us, and we'll give you a tax break. If you don't vote for us, you won't get it. And by the way, once you have it, we'll decide if we keep it, and we may not. So it's, it's, it's luring them in, and um, and the same with the with the you know with the license plates and so forth. And there's I, I'm interested in seeing this budget. I'm more interested in seeing the provincial budget than I am the federal budget. I mean, to Karen's point, 
there's a lot of responsibility that needs to be had in preparing these budgets for the future. And uh, I, I, I don't know how the, how the provincial guys are going to make it work, given all the spending that they're putting out. Uh-huh. Uh, John, are they just trying to buy our votes and worry about how to make it work later? Well, I think some would look at it that way. I think others, like me, would look at it the way of, of the, you know, the government trying to help exactly the issue that we've been talking about, cost of living. And, you know, there's certain things that are out of the control of governments that are global aspects. And Karen mentioned, you know, sort of the, the, the war in Ukraine, obviously, and, and supply chain issues are, are areas that, that governments can't necessarily help with because there are global implications and there are global challenges. But there are certain things that governments can do and can be of relief to, to, to their citizens, be it Ontario or, or Canada-wide. In Ontario, the Premier has said, look, you know what, there are pressures that people can't, are, are facing right now that are real. But what we can control are gas prices. What we can control are the ability to be able to have you know, people get a relief of $100 or $200 with respect to, to license plate renewals and, and refunds. Those are little things that cynics might say, well, you know, they're buying votes. And, and in some cases, because it's election year, that is the case. And as Charles rightly said, you know, he got criticized in the last budget when, when the Liberals, you know, going in the election campaign were spending millions of dollars of or billions of dollars of, of, of in areas that might not affected individuals necessarily directly. But at least what the Premier is doing is he's trying to give relief directly to people who are facing the challenges today that need to have a bit of a break. And, and I think that's what that's, you know, how I will look at it as well. Well, it's let, funny. Let me, I need I need to add to something here. I mean, John, <laughs> I, I appreciate the good points you made. There's one issue that I take exception with. And that is we had two and a half billion dollars in annual revenues from a cap and trade system that allow for us to price our carbon without affecting families directly. And that was eliminated for a political decision to go after Justin Trudeau on a carbon tax, which now we have at a much higher rate. And that's the part that infuriates me. Political decisions interfered with what I thought were reasonable and responsible decisions for the long term. And that's the part that's unfortunate. And when we look at affordability, well, the federal government is doing increasing tax freeze for first-time homeowners and savings, doubling the first-time homebuyers, you know, taxing the anti-flip uh, investor groups and things of that sort, trying to find to make housing more affordable. But it is complicated, certainly. But I worry that sometimes the decisions being made right now are simplistic, given the consequences that come from it. Well, yeah, and the gas task, the gas tax thing, you know, they're going into an election. They made that promise before the last election. Somebody said, hmm, we're going to be accused of not fulfilling our promise. Suddenly, there it is. Yeah. Uh, well, at a time when transit, though, needs all the money it can get, and the, da- the gas tax partially funds transit, it's, you wonder if, it makes, if the timing is right on this one. Well, the timing is right if you're fighting an election. If you're fighting an election, yeah. And admittedly, all parties do it. I mean, we fought, we were, we were branded that way too. And I, it infuriated me, even within my party, when those things take place. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, all parties do do it. And I so, do give Charles credit for that because Charles Charles was very much you know agitated by it last time around and and uh, it made some some smart decisions based on that and I do think to Karen's point just quickly uh, with respect to transit and what we're seeing again both federally and provincially is a lot of funding going towards transit and the new Ontario line again in the hopes of trying to get you know people and citizens moving again in a way that's quicker and maybe out of cars and onto subways. We only have a few minutes left. I haven't 
been hearing very much about the conservative leadership race. Uh, uh, John, uh, what's your take on where they're at? Quiet well, I, time? I it's, it's good news in some ways, because I think that, you know, we were talking about how they were cutting each other up and criticizing, and that was always making news and headlines. Now they're not. Now they're focusing on membership sales, which is a good sign, and that's why they're probably not making the press. But but it's out there, and, and people are selling memberships, which is usually not, not the most newsworthy of, 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 uh, of stages within the leadership. Karen? Yeah, I agree with you. It has been quite quiet. Um, but I'm, I'm, you know, again, guessing from a, a tactical perspective, and to John's point, they're just getting down to the business of organizing and, uh, you know, recognizing there's a federal budget that's being unveiled, there's a provincial election underway, and given that they're probably not going to get airtime anyway, and um, that there's better ways they could spend their time, perhaps that's what they're, the strategy they're employing. Hey, we've, we've been asking all of them to come on, you know, we'll give them some airtime, but they're, <laughs> they're focusing on other things. Charles, uh, is, do you agree with all that? Uh, absolutely. Pierre is selling out. I mean, those uh, people that are coming out in droves, and it really speaks to the fact that they're looking for change. People want some change. And he's taking advantage of it, and he's filling the house. Uh, wow, I'm, I'm really impressed, but i got to admit uh, how effective he's become. Uh-huh. What about uh, Jean Charest? Well, there's the counter, right? Jean Charest is much more low-key. And, and when it comes, to, as I think in previous um, uh, sessions that we've had, it's a matter of trust, and I trust John Charest to be more of a unifier and nation builder for uh, the sort of the middle of the road citizens, the majority of, of us. And I'm not sure Pierre will be that way, but who knows? People do rise to the occasion when they're in those positions, and they change their mind. And we've seen that with other conservative leaders who won with support from the far right, and then they tracked over to the center. And, and, and a lot of good it did them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't think we can, we can just uh, hand it to Pierre Polyevre just, just yet. But no. uh, there's a lot more to come. It really is yeah. a quiet time in that particular race. Uh, we're basically out of time, so we'll go around the virtual table, starting with John. Well, you know what? Just to say, you know, for those of us and your listeners who are lovers of golf, the fact that Tiger Woods, um, who almost, you know, about a year or two years ago, almost lost the league, is, is potentially going to be playing in the Masters is incredible news. And I hope he does. I hope he, uh, it's, a, it's a great sign and I'll be watching it. Uh, but, but having him even think about playing is an incredible um, uh, achievement. Okay, Karen. Oh, well, a little closer to home. It's the Blue Jays home opener this Friday. <laughs> and as it happens, I got these $5 seats, and I'm up in the nosebleed section, and I'm quite excited about it. Okay. <laughs> Charles, uh, what's your favorite sport? <laughs> oh, man, I don't, I don't get out much. I, I, I'm all for the World Cup right now, and I'm glad to see Canada's uh, in there, and it's giving <laughs> us a lot of pride. I am, however, concerned about the uncertainty in our in our situation when it comes to the pandemic. It is scary that the National Advisory Committee for Immunization is just calling for increased mandates to get people vaccinated. It doesn't stop. Anyway, go Canada, go. Go Canada, go. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to the French Open. (laughs) We, We just finished the Miami Open. Uh, thank you all. Uh, Charles Souza, John Capobianco, and Karen Sintz. We will talk soon. Thanks a lot. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, we are going to be talking about an important aspect of healthcare and the fact that 
If you need a cancer drug that's in pill form, it won't be covered by the government. If you need something that involves an IV in the hospital, well, that is paid for. We'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It's a long-standing anomaly in cancer treatment in Ontario. The government covers chemotherapy and other types of drugs delivered intravenously in hospital, but not take-home cancer drugs in pill form. The Ontario Drug Plan for Seniors covers many of these drugs for people over 65, and private health insurance through work covers others for some people, but it can be a huge hardship. And it makes no sense. Uh, I remember coming up against this in my treatment years ago. I had already maxed out my health plan. I had to be on a drug called capecitabine, and it was not a new drug. And I only had to take it for a couple of months. And I remember being really grateful that the cost per month was in the hundreds and not the thousands. And many patients just aren't that lucky. Take-home cancer drugs are covered in other provinces. And, you know, I've covered this issue, as I said, for years, and it is still not resolved. So we'd like to hear from you if uh, this is something that has affected you or your family. The number is to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by MJ Dakota, who's the founder and executive director of Rethink Breast Cancer, uh, Rebecca Grundy, who was diagnosed with stage four brain cancer cancer at the age of 28 in 2018, and NDP health critic Franchelina. Hi, thanks for joining us, everyone. Good morning. Thank you. I guess good afternoon. Good afternoon. Let's let's (laughs) begin with Rebecca. So uh, you got a terrible diagnosis at a very young age, and uh, the only drug that was appropriate for you was a pill, right? Yeah, that is correct. And uh, my situation actually is not unique. And hearing of your story, you know, there are several patients under the age of 65 that are diagnosed with cancer that their treatments come in these oral formulations in a pill form or infusion. And these pills um, can conveniently and safely be taken at home. Um, uh, But unfortunately, like you were even saying before, uh, with the advancements of cancer treatments, the majority are now in these formulations, but because it's a take-home rather than taken in hospital, we're faced with delays, dollars, and distress. And that's why we were out yesterday on the south lawn of Queen's Park to educate Rebecca, um, the officials. So, yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd like you, I'm, I'm looking here that um, what, just to, can you specifically tell me the hoops you had to go through to try to get some coverage from, I mean, there's a program called Trillium. So just tell me uh, the hoops you had to go through to try to get some coverage. Well, first, like many other young cancer patients, I had to exhaust all my private drug insurance. So for me, I actually only had $5,000 as a cap with my private plan for drugs. Uh, and that was exhausted right away within like the first month and a half. My treatment cost me over $6,000 a month, or it cost $6,000 a month. 
And I had to take this uh, treatment for eight months. Uh, this was at a time where I was off work on long-term disability and making a very reduced income. And then after which I had to apply for the Ontario Trillium Drug Program. And I knew that this would take several weeks for approval. Um, some patients, it even takes like up to a month, if not more. Uh, and finally, once you get that letter saying that you've been approved, after much delay, sleepless nights and anxiety, whether you're going to get your treatment funded, I was given a bill for $4,000 as a deductible to pay for my treatment. And that's something that, like I said, this situation is not unique. Most people that go through that program must pay a 4% deductible, uh, which is equal to uh, 4% of their household earnings prior to getting sick. Um, and so that's just another barrier to access all these um, approved cancer treatments that are stamped by Health Canada listed on the formulary. But for some reason, just because we're under the age of 65, we have all these hoops to jump through. And they're not all listed, by the way. Uh, and uh, so they're, not all cancer treatments are listed. And if they're not listed on the particular thing, it's going to affect people over 65, but it affects a lot of people. France, why is this anomaly still going on? I would say lack of political will. The the example that Rebecca share, I hear examples like this every single week uh, where, you know, like to say that we have the trillion that will cover your drugs for many of them who've come to me, like it's a six, eight, ten weeks delay before they have proven that they have no coverage or exhausted their drug insurance coverage. And then for the government to actually action off and say you qualify for Trillium. But then even once you've done all of this, you're still on the hook for 4% of your previous year's family income, which for many people, the previous year, they were not sick. They were working full time, had hopefully a decent job. Now, they are sick. Um, they need their medication. They need the medication right away. They cannot wait for the government six, eight, 12 weeks to do their work. And, and then they still have to pay up front and wait even longer for the government to pay them back. The whole thing is, brings so much hardship uh, to people who are already having a tough time in life at the time. Many other provinces have solved this. Take-home cancer drugs is covered. Uh, this is a bill that uh, the NDP, I have put forward many, many times to the Liberal governments before, to the Conservative government now, and I get the same answer. Oh, we have a drug program. It's called Trillium, and it's just wonderful, which is not. Uh, MJ Dakoto, I'm assuming that just like everything else with cancer care, that whatever the situation was before, it's even worse now because of the pandemic. Absolutely. You know, unfortunately, we are expecting to see a spike. The oncologists who advise us are expecting to see a spike in later stage diagnosis. So people being diagnosed, you know, right out the gate, unfortunately, with stage four, but also stage three. And, you know, if it's stage three, it's got that high chance of recurrence and metastasis. So it's so, so important to treat right away. Um, you know, learning that a one-month delay, there was a study published in the British Journal of Medicine that 
a one-month delay in treatment can increase death by 10%. I hate to even like announce that publicly because we know there's women in our community and all kinds of cancer patients that unfortunately have, have had that kind of a delay. Um, you know, it's also, to me, it's discriminating by cancer subtype and you can't control that. You can't control that you got cancer. And, you know, 30 years ago, all cancers were treated the same way. You had chemo, surgery, radiation. Those were kind of the tools in your toolbox. We now know different tumors behave differently. They've got different mechanisms that are fueling their growth. We have these targeted therapies that address very specific types of cancer. And it just doesn't seem fair that in Ontario, if you have the type of cancer that does benefit from an, in, um, an infusion, you get your treatment two days later. But if you do have to take an, an oral medication, and it's not by choice, it's not out of convenience, it's because that's the type of medication that will actually control your cancer, suddenly you're faced with you know, a program, as, as France says, that's not working very well. It's, well, it's causing a lot of problems. And it is more convenient. And just as an aside, uh, as someone who has taken a lot of IV chemotherapy, uh, you have to get yourself to the hospital, which you're not necessarily up for. Uh, there's a cost of the people administering the drugs. And after a bit, it's like your veins get hard and it burns when the drugs go through. It's horrible. I mean, pills should be embraced. It is much easier for everyone. Uh, so, uh, well, but I know agree. that... Fully agree. Uh, I would tell you that I often have oncologists themselves saying that, you know, like they will continue their patients on IV therapy because they know that it's free while they wait and wait and wait for the government to answer if they're going to be covered mm -hmm. in all of this. Like the treatment decision should be made on what is the best quality care for that patient. What is the, the treatment that has, you know, that has been proven uh, to be uh, the standard of care. But for many oncologists, they have to, and their patients, they face this decision of, of going to a, a different treatment, not the standard of care, um, because of the money issue with take-home cancer drug. It is wrong. It has to change. It will save money to the healthcare system in the long run because the people that work in in the uh, uh, cancer treatment center uh, needs to be paid in, in all of this. At home, you take your pill um, and and life goes on. And you see your oncologist uh, or once a month or once every three weeks, whatever is, is recommended. Uh, but we have none of that and a lot of people suffer. And, and it shouldn't be like that. Well, the, the, the number that I see on uh, your release, MJ and Rebecca, is 30 million a year. It frank, frankly, it doesn't, it doesn't look that high. Not only is it a modest ask in terms of the amount, but we've actually made recommend, recommendations of where that funding could come from. Like there's been, because of the complicated navigation process, to fill out all the paperwork and figure out how you can get these take-home cancer treatments. There's actually been a whole administrative group of people called drug navigators that have had to pop up just to help people with this paperwork. These are social workers who could be doing 
completely different type of work, but instead they're they're helping patients with this type of paperwork. Well, they, there's there's a lot more to navigate through the cancer system uh, to be to be fair, and through the hospital system, uh, they have their work cut out for them. But uh, and, you know, yes, and they should be spending on on time that's necessary, not yeah, you know, this extra paperwork for something that should be accessible the way it is in other provinces. And, and France, uh, you're saying that everybody seems to think, or the, the, the health ministry seems to think that the Trillium program works fine. Uh, they haven't even taken a look at it, or this hasn't come up. I mean, I'm still kind of uh, amazed by that. Oh, I, I'm I'm truly disappointed by all of this. I mean, anybody can go on Hansard. Like every time we speak at the Legislative Assembly, it is typed down. And I have asked this question uh, many times uh, of the Minister of Health, of previous Minister of Health. You you will remember <laughs> back, like uh, from uh, Doctor Hoskin to uh, anyway to, and and the answer is always the same that oh, Ontario already has a drug program. Uh, Christine Elliott, the present Minister of Health, uh, this is the answer she gives me every time. And when I push back and give like specific example of people who have had their treatment delayed, who could not gain access to the standard of care because of the delay with the um, with uh, Trillium, as well as the fact that they did not have the four percent of their family income up front, or they could not uh, put you know twenty thousand, forty thousand dollars up front and wait to be reimbursed, and all of this, it's as if like none of this matters. Ontario has Trillium, and and uh, this is what they're going to continue with. I I don't support this. We're on record. We want take-home cancer drugs to be covered. This is the least that the government can do to help the people. And I agree with what MJ was saying, that through the pandemic, we now see a whole lot more cancer being diagnosed at stage three and stage four. Uh, the window of treatment is often very short. Every day, every week counts. And yet we have a system that expects you to wait an, a minimum of six weeks, most of the time, eight, 10 or 12 weeks. Okay. Uh, I'm looking at the time. This is uh, an important conversation. Uh, we will take it up again, but right now I'm out of time on this. Thank you so much. Rebecca Grundy, MJ Decoto, and Franche Elina. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Zibi. Thank you. Bye, Libby. Bye-bye. Uh, we are taking a short break, and when we come back, Minister of Immigration, Sean Fraser. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We have been reporting extensively on the Ukraine war and the efforts to bring Ukrainians fleeing the war to Canada. The government introduced a special program intended to cut red tape. It just went into effect two weeks ago, and so far, no one coming through this way has actually arrived, but many people are approved. So I thought it was a good time to check in with Immigration Minister Sean Fraser. Minister Sean Fraser, thank you for taking the time. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. First of all, do you have some updated numbers of how many people have applied on the special program and how many have been approved? 
Uh, I do, yeah. Look, we launched the special program over uh, just over two weeks ago, and we've now seen in excess of 90,000 applications and 14,500 approvals come through. Uh, that, that's in addition to those travelers who would have been approved prior to the, uh, the, the new system coming into effect. And have any of those people actually arrived here? Uh, we have seen uh, since the beginning of the year, there's more than 12,000 Ukrainians that have arrived. I would point out under the new special program, it's only been a couple of days since the two week, uh, the first uh, tranche would have been approved uh, because there is a two week uh, processing time. Uh, but we have seen a significant number of Ukrainians arrive in Canada. I just don't have in front of me the breakdown uh, as to who came under which particular travel document. Okay. In the past, the requirement for biometrics for the security clearances were cited as a big impediment, and you removed some of those restrictions. You've also said that we seem to, at this point, be processing a a very large number of people with those appointments. How are we doing that? They're digital applications, but we do have uh, people on the ground. That's for the, the special travel visa. Uh, but we do have people who are actually operating uh, biometrics kits and taking appointments with individuals. Uh, it takes a lot of logistics and planning and staff on the ground to make sure that we have the capacity to process as many people as possible. Uh, and, of course, for those low-risk cohorts we identified uh, a little more than a week ago, uh, we've uh, waived altogether the requirements of, of a biometric analysis for children up to the age of 18, for those over 60, as well as those who have a travel history to Canada where they've followed all of the rules, because we simply don't see a risk with uh, w- with certain cohorts that uh, what would justify uh, maintaining the, uh, the requirement for biometrics. But uh, we're finding right now that with the right uh, human resources and, and equipment in place, um, it's not been... Um, uh, not been the, the sticking point uh, for, for many people that, that, uh, that, that are now approved to come to Canada. You've said that, well, this under this special program, it gives people the right to work, but they're not classified as refugees. And you've said that they will be getting some supports that refugees get, but not all. So since they are actually refugees, what exactly were you referring to there? Sure. So we put a number of measures in place already, and we're continuing to look at what more we can do because it's not enough for people to get here. They have to be set up to succeed once they arrive. So on Monday of last week, uh, we shared details uh, of our plan to extend settlement support that are made available to refugees through settlement agencies. This is the kind of thing that provides uh, services like language training, like uh, employment assistance. And depending on which agency you're dealing with and which part of the country, they may help you with um, things like learning how to ride the local bus system or to sign up for a course uh, at, uh, at a local school. Um, we're continuing to advance new supports through a partnership we've reached with the uh, Red Cross, uh, who's going to meet people at airports, help people sign up for social insurance numbers. We're looking at what further supports we can provide, and we're having conversations with our provincial and territorial partners to figure out which supports they're better positioned to provide. Those, of course, who come in on an open work permit are eligible once they're working to um, uh, to access uh, the, the ordinary healthcare system, for example. Uh, but we're having those conversations with, with provinces and territories to figure out who's best positioned to provide which kinds of resources. Um, I would point out there is uh, 
Uh, one big difference uh, that separates this group from a, a traditional refugee resettlement process, uh, when people come to Canada as refugees, they plan to stay forever because the, their ability to return to their homeland has, uh, in most cases, disappeared permanently. With respect to the people who are coming under this special visa, the reason it's unique is that almost to a person, they they want to go home when it's safe to do so. They are not abandoning Ukraine. To the contrary, they want to uh, seek safe haven and return when it's safe to do so. We're actually seeing reports from the ground right now that a lot of people who are applying to Canada's system are taking it out uh, as an insurance policy, effectively, because they don't want to move too far away from Ukraine in case it becomes possible for them to go home sooner than expected. It's a really unique dynamic, and inventing new programs to respond to a unique situation in real time is a real challenge, but it's one that I feel that, uh, that, that the government of Canada is more than up to. Since it is basically women and children and older people and, and women who wouldn't be able to work right away because they're there with their kids and they're traumatized. Healthcare, apparently, according to some of the immigrant and settlement agencies, is a big impediment for people. Where are you at on that? I know it's a provincial responsibility, but the lack of access to healthcare is a huge issue. So, as you can appreciate, the immigration minister isn't responsible for health care policy in the different provinces. Uh, but nevertheless, we're having those conversations. The province of Quebec has actually stepped up and already said it's covering health care and education and, and child care. Uh, for those who, who do qualify for the work permit and are working, they'll have access to it as well. There are other supports that we're looking at, whether it's coordinating the goodwill from Canadians, potential direct support to uh, Ukrainians who arrive or, or potential to help facilitate um, transportation or, or, or accommodations. These are the different kinds of things that we're looking at. Uh, but we need to make sure that we maintain a Team Canada approach. And I would love to see other provinces step up the way that Quebec has and say, if the federal government's doing most of the heavy lifting on these other items, um, we should demonstrate that we also want to provide for some of the world's most vulnerable. You've described it perfectly. We can't count on everyone who's arriving here to be signing up for uh, some of the many job vacancies that exist across the economy. We're dealing with people who've just fled a war zone. We're, they've experienced a trauma that uh, many people will never experience in their lifetime, and it's important that we land on a package of supports that set them up for success once they're here. Some people have cited a danger of human trafficking, and that that danger might be biggest once they land if they have no one here, if they have no relatives who are taking care of them. Have you thought about dealing with that? I have no doubt that around the world and across Canada, the vast majority of people who put up their hands saying that uh, I can provide assistance, uh, I want to help in your time of need, are doing it for nothing but the best of intentions. But there are potentially bad actors there, too, who are going to be looking to take advantage of people in a moment of, of absolute desperation. Uh, it's important that we uh, do what we can to uh, ensure when people arrive, they get good information about where they're going, what supports exist. As of April 1st, we actually have people uh, through the Canadian Red Cross that are uh, set up at major airports that are actually going to be providing information to people about uh, what information they can rely on, uh, making sure we know who's landed and where they intend to go to. If I go back to the biometrics analysis, although it wasn't necessarily the, the only or, or primary motivation to maintain some biometrics analysis, it's really important that you understand who's coming, not just as a potential bad actor, 
uh, but to identify the people who want to come to Canada to in some ways protect them against uh, these kinds of harms uh, after they arrive. Okay, final question. Uh, It's a big question. It has to do with Afghans who helped our troops, who are blaming the government for failing to bring their families over. Some of them have embarked on a hunger strike, and uh, basically they blame the government. They say Canada has gone back on its word. Um, look, uh, we're dealing with a group of people who've made a contribution to Canada and who are really hurting right now. I- I've had the opportunity to meet with them before, and they're in touch on a roughly weekly basis uh, with members of, of my team. Um, we set up a special stream under our Afghan refugee program for the extended family members of previously resettled interpreters because we want to help reunite these people who serve Canada with their families. There are some really unique challenges around access to travel documents, not that the government of Canada provides, but that come from Afghanistan. Uh, Sometimes uh, there are people who've made their way into a third country like Pakistan who are insisting that these individuals have access to travel documents provided by Afghanistan. As you can appreciate, now that the Taliban, a listed terrorist entity in Canadian law, has seized control of the territory and the production of travel documents for that matter, the logistics of actually getting a person what they need, not just to come to Canada, but to leave the country that they are in, is overwhelmingly challenging. We've got a situation in Afghanistan where the Taliban are, in some instances, pulling Canadian citizens off airplanes, not letting them uh, exit the country because they would dare have the gall to, to travel as a woman. That's their perspective. It is so offensive to me. But with respect to uh, the particular group you've mentioned, I want to reiterate that we've created a special immigration stream specifically because we want to help these people. Uh, I'm not going to go back on that commitment, no matter how daunting the task may be. Are you talking to Pakistan? I mean, first of all, it doesn't make sense that they are going to keep people because they don't have the right travel documents. And I mean, will they not cooperate with Canada on this? There's a whole host of challenges, and not every applicant is in the same uh, the, the same boat. Uh, we're having conversations with partners in the region, whether it was uh, uh, Pakistan, uh, UAE, Qatar, anyone who can help us secure safe passage of those we've made a commitment to. And one of the unique challenges that I don't think a lot of people appreciate that's specific to uh, Afghanistan uh, is the fact that we haven't made a commitment to any 40,000 Afghan refugees. Had we were been... Uh, uh, that broad in our commitment, uh, we probably could have uh, uh, pulled people into our humanitarian program who are already in a third country. But we made a commitment to specific individuals, whether it's the family members of these interpreters or those who made a significant and enduring contribution to Canada. And many of those people are still in Afghanistan or in a country where they're having difficulty leaving. Uh, when you have uh, thousands of people who've already been through the process that are still in Afghanistan, but they can't secure safe passage, you begin to understand that the challenges in Afghanistan are unlike anything that we've seen before. And despite these challenges, we'll work not only with our uh, countries in the region, but also with my counterparts and other ministerial colleagues uh, to see if we can uh, unblock any of these sticking points along the way. Uh, But these challenges are immense, uh, but we will not waver. We've made one of the most substantial commitments of any country in the world to welcome Afghan refugees, and we will not waver until we make good on those commitments. Okay. Minister Sean Fraser, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. 
The pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.